0: Our reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Jesus went to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said in reply, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him in reply, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so I say to you, you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the nether world shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly ordered his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The gospel of the Lord. Let's take a look at this gospel passage. First, let's set the scene. The the scripture says that Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Now, That's a region that we now know as the Golan Heights. There in the northern border of Israel or the southern border of Syria, depending upon which side of that border you're on. And Caesarea Philippi was a place that in the Old Testament was named Baal God. Baal God, G-A-D, not G-O-D, was, uh, actually means the Lord of luck. So it was, it was a pagan place, and they worshipped the Lord of luck there. Which, incidentally, when you look at, at uh, pagan inscriptions, the most ever prayed to God in all of pagandom, if that's a word, was luck. Fortuna, and, uh, the goddess of luck in, in the Roman world. We call her Lady Luck to this day, don't we? But anyway, the God of luck, Baal God was the was the name of that place and then when Alexander the Great he moved to the region he renamed it Panaeus after the god Pan the god of Greek god of nature well when the Romans took over they renamed it after Caesar and it became Caesarea Panaeus well then uh, there was a a governor in the region by the name of Philip, and he wanted to name it after himself, and so he named it Caesarea Philippi, after himself. So this place had gone through several different namings. As you can see, it's always kind of been dedicated to, to luck, to money, to the powers of Rome, and of course to ego. Everybody wants to name this place after themselves. So in other words, this place is really known as the place of the world, the flesh, and the devil, because that is how it had been named throughout the centuries. And there was an interesting geological aspect of this area. There was this cavern there, a cave, from which there was a spring of water that rose up out of the cave, and there was a well inside of the cave. And uh, the worshipers of Pan would always go to this cave to bathe in the spring waters and to uh, perform ritual um, acts there. And this, this spring water would flow over this giant rock. Now, this cavern was known as the Gates of Hades or the Gates of Hell. And the spring water would come over this giant rock and then pour into the valley and form the River Bonius that made its way to the Jordan River. So it's a very unholy place, and this is where Jesus brought his disciples to ask them this question, who do men say that I am? And the answers are actually kind of confusing, aren't they? They, uh, you know, some say that he's John the Baptist, which sounds really odd to us, but you realize that. Jesus' public ministry began about the time that John the Baptist was taken prisoner. And of course, there was no CNN in those days, so people didn't know what had happened to John the Baptist. And so I'm sure many people thought, well, he just changed his name and became a healer. You know, he went, moved to Galilee, changed his name to Jesus, and, or Joshua, remember last week's homily, and became a, a healer. And then others want to say he must be one of the prophets. Jeremiah is mentioned. And I'm sure some of Jesus' teachings about the end of the age sounded something like Jeremiah's uh, prophecies of destruction. But But the theme through all of these answers is that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, could not simply be a carpenter's son. He could not even be A rabbi there was something much much greater about him something that no one could explain and so they were coming up with their own ideas as as to who this Jesus was how could he preach the way he preached with such authority how could he heal the sick and cast out demons even raise the dead how could this man do these things and they came up with all of these ideas on their own But Simon has a moment of inspiration and says, I know who you are. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ, the anointed one. Now in the Old Testament, priests, prophets, and kings were all anointed. But Jesus is more than that. And so Peter goes on to say, you're the son of the living God. That's an immensely powerful statement. And Jesus is so pleased with that statement that he changes Simon's name. And he says, from now on, you are Peter, the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus at this moment is beginning to explain what the church is or what the church is going to be. And he begins with this uh, illustration or this allusion to, to a building that Peter is going to be a foundation stone in a some kind of spiritual building. And in fact, throughout... Um, the early centuries of the church, the church was always compared to a living temple, a temple of living stones, or even a tower, a tower built so that those who are in trouble could seek protection, could find safety there. It is Christ's intention that the church that would be built on the foundation of Peter and of the apostles would be a place of safety, a place where people could come And know that they were safe. In the scriptures, oftentimes Jesus is referred to as the cornerstone. The cornerstone of the church. And the apostles are the foundation of the church. And from that, the living stones, we the living stones are built up into a church. There's a wonderful little book written in the second century by one of the popes of the second century. By the name of Hermas. And it talks about the church being a tower where all those who come to it can find safety and that we are the the living stones of that tower. And it's kind of interesting in that book that there are angels who are who have hammers and chisels and are chipping away at the stones, us, to take away from us those things that keep us from being fitted properly into the church. It's a very interesting illustration that Hermas gives us in the second century. But Jesus begins that that analogy here. You are Peter, you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And then he goes on to give Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, the reason this Old Testament uh, reading we had today... Is linked to this, is it, uh, this gospel is because of the explanation of the keys. You see, somehow at some point in the church's imagination, Peter became the man who stands at the pearly gates, right? And he's got the key to get into heaven. You notice that. And so people come, and Peter says, "Okay, I'll let you in," and he unlocks the door and lets people in, or he doesn't. He says, "No, you have to go away," and doesn't let people in. But they get this—that's uh, this, the concept that people came up with. Key this idea of keys. But the truth of that concept comes from this Old Testament reading. You see, there was, in the, in the Old Testament kingdom, there's the king, and the king's second-in-command was um, his, we might call him a prime minister, or we might call him a, a chief steward, or perhaps even a, a vicar. And so, it was the role of this chief steward to govern everything in the palace. He made legal decisions. He made made choices. He basically ran everything under the direction of the king. He worked directly for the king, and he was like second in command. And the symbol of his office was a key that he placed on his shoulder. So when Jesus says to... To Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He is passing to Peter an authority of his chief steward or prime minister or vicar. In fact, to this day we call the Pope, right, the vicar of Christ. He is the one who stands in the place. He has the earthly position as the steward of the church, the vicar of the church of Christ. He's not the king, but he works for the king. He has a stewardship of the church. And as you see in that first reading, as this stewardship is passed from one person to another, there was Shebna, who I guess had done a bad job as chief steward, and so the key of David is passed from Shebna to Eliakim whom God prophesies what you open will remain open, what you close will remain closed. And we see that in terms of a key, right? That's what a key does. It opens and it closes. And how that was understood in the first century, in in ancient Judaism, is that the authority of the key, the possessor of the key, had the authority to make judgments about the Torah, how, because, you know, people come up with different interpretations of the Torah, or for us, for the Bible, people come up with different interpretations. But there was someone who had to say, well, this is the right one. This is the one we are going to abide by. And you could bind people to that interpretation. In fact, even in Jesus' day, there was, a, uh, there was something called the seat of Moses. Remember Jesus talking about the scribes, and he says... You have to do what they say because they sit in the seat of Moses. Because Moses, at the time of Christ, was not seen just as a person, it was an office. And those who sat in the seat of Moses, those who possessed the key of Moses, had the authority to proclaim the true interpretation of the Torah. Therefore, get to do what they say. But, Jesus says, don't do what they do because they don't follow what they say. In the same way today, we see Peter not just as an individual, right? We see Peter as an office, as a man who sits in the succession of Peter. Just as the key was passed from from Shebna to Eliakim, how the key was passed through the seat of Moses, There is the seat of Peter, the chair of Peter. And it is the Holy Father in Rome, the Bishop of Rome, who possesses the succession of Peter and so has that authority to decide for us, to say there are lots of different interpretations of what Christianity is. There are many interpretations of the Bible. But this is the truth. This is the truth. Now, why is that important? And I want to make it very clear here. I'm not saying that just because we're Catholic and we have Peter, all right, we've got Peter. He's he's ours, right? That doesn't make us better Christians than Protestants. Goodness gracious, I spent most of my life as a Protestant Christian, right? I've only been a Catholic priest for two years. I spent most of my life in the Protestant world, and believe me, I know that there are one that... There are wonderful Christians among Protestants. That doesn't make them not Christian. But Christ desired there to be, he intended, for there to be be a surety, a security, a safety. Someone has to make that decision of the right way to go. That's one of the things that attracted me about the Catholic Church, because as much as I loved being a Protestant, and uh, and some of you think I'm still too Protestant, right? But they love Jesus and they study the Bible and it's, and it's, 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 it's a great thing. But we need a safety, we need a security, we need a tower that gives us strength, that holds us together. And even among Protestants, they understand that the Catholic Church is yet an anchor for all of Christianity. It is an anchor for all of us to give us a sense of protection. And we can disagree with the Holy Father, and there have been times I disagreed with the Holy Father. I have to confess that to you. But one of the things that I learned is that when I disagree with the Pope, eventually I figure out that that he was right. This is the way Christ intended it. That we can have a truth that gives us that strong tower that protects us from error. And having been spent many years as a Protestant minister, I have to say I saw a lot of destruction because there's no limits to what a Protestant minister can say or do or teach. Most are wonderful, most are good. But I can remember when I was a Protestant, a young woman had shown up at my doorstep. She was a member of another church. And um, we actually had, and my wife Cheryl had actually been watching her child, taking care of her because she had some things to do and she came to get her child and um, the Holy Spirit spoke to, to my wife and said, don't let her leave. And so she, we brought her in, we, we took care of her, we, we visited with her, we counseled with her, we had her stay the night. As it turns out, she was on her way to commit suicide because her pa- she had gone through a divorce, which is why she was a single mom, why we were helping her watch her child. And Her pastor had told her that if she prayed believing, her husband would come back to her. And the day that her husband remarried, she lost everything. She lost her faith in God, her faith in herself. And so she was just going to kill herself. She was on her way to commit suicide. And I just want to be extremely clear, especially when I preach something like this about the seat of Peter, that I'm not trying to be triumphalistic. I'm not trying to say we're better than Protestants. Not any way, shape, or form do I intend that. Or I'm trying to say that all the Protestants are wrong. But there is a safety, there is a surety, there is an anchor that God has placed upon Peter and his successors to lead us and to guide us through life. Because God, Jesus, understood that there are going to be many confusions. There are going to be many arguments. Even you read the book of the Acts of the Apostles and see how disjointed they were, how dysfunctional the church was even then. Peter goes to Cornelius, the Holy Spirit falls upon this Gentile Roman soldier and he baptizes him. And on his way back to Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem has decided they're going to stone Peter to death because they disagreed with what he said. And Peter said, no, this is what the Holy Spirit ordered. See, even, even there within the first few years of the church, there needed to be the one who said, this seems good to the Holy Spirit and to me. I have no idea why Jesus would assign this authority of the kingdom of God or sometimes I like to translate that the government of God that Jesus knew that there would need to be a government of God in the earth for all time and he picked this unruly loud-mouthed fisherman who was so impetuous, why would he pick him? I have no idea. But it's not my choice. It belonged to Christ, and he made that choice. And throughout the centuries, the seat of Peter has still stood for truth, and for safety for all Christians. Most of you don't realize that I, as pastor of Guardian Angels, and I'm preaching too long, I, as pastor of Guardian Angels, am responsible for all the souls within these parish boundaries. Did you know that? Not just the Catholic souls, not just the Christian souls. Because the church is responsible for for the proclamation of the kingdom of God for all time. And so it's my responsibility that everybody who lives around this parish hears and understands the gospel. What they do with that is their choice. But it's my responsibility as pastor of this parish to care for the souls of all who live here. The church sees itself as that tower of safety, as that anchor of truth for all mankind. Because Christ cared about all of us. And so he gave us an earthly vicar to guide us through all of our lives. And I know most of us have been hurt by the church. Most of us have been hurt by priests. It's not a perfect church. But it's the one Christ established. And so we love her and support her with our lives.